Please remain standing as we pray together. Come Holy Spirit now and fill this place and your people with your presence. Lord, we pray that you would come in power and fill me, the preacher of the word. Lord, I come handling sacred things this morning, and I do it uh, with, with trepidation, Lord, to teach the Word of God today. So please, Lord, empower me. Uh, let me speak uh, a word of life in this place. Please anoint the teaching of the Scriptures and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, you may be seated. Uh, if you uh, began coming to Christ Church in the summertime, and uh, me and Lisa weren't here, uh, I want you to know that I'm now the new pastor at Christ Church. <laughs> uh, Keith did an amazing job, and as far as I can tell, though, you still want me here, so that's good news for me, too. So uh, we look forward to, to entering back into this coming season of ministry with you. Now, as you can see from the font up at the front here and from the things that we've talked about, and at least from the cover of your service guide, uh, we are going to be having a baptism today. And so we want to talk a little bit about what that means and what's going on here. You know, the Bible describes holy baptism, listen, as something not so much that we do for God, but that God does for us. In other words, while baptism may be an expression of our human devotion to Jesus Christ, it may be an affirmation, a public affirmation of faith in Jesus Christ, the New Testament, however, never paints baptism merely in those terms. It's not merely a public profession of faith. It's not merely an act of personal devotion. When we come in faith to the physical waters of baptism, we're plunged and we're plunged beneath them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God is genuinely at that moment, genuinely, supernaturally, effectively acting in our lives. And that's what's going to happen this morning when Benjamin Robert Bora is baptized. And I do want to congratulate the parents on maintaining the Southern tradition of giving the child two first names, Benny Bob. <laughs> no, that's never going to happen, I don't think. <laughs> so when Benny is baptized, this actually ba this begs several questions today. So these are the questions that I think that this baptism brings up for us. If God is doing something, okay, well, exactly what is it? And our small children, is Benny actually a proper candidate to receive this sacrament? And if he is, what's going to happen to Benny this morning other than really getting extremely wet? And, and maybe even, I don't know, getting me wet too in the process since uh, we baptize babies naked here. So no, no telling what could happen. So what does God do in baptism? What is God going to do in this baptism moment or in any baptism? Well, in baptism, God is incorporating us, bringing us into and uniting us with, listen, his mighty acts of salvation. God incorporates us into his mighty acts of salvation through our baptism. Baptism literally preaches the gospel. The act of baptism preaches the good news about Jesus Christ, and it incorporates us into that good news as well. It makes us a part of God's saving work that he began way back in the Old Testament. You know, 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter directly connects baptism with, of all things, Noah and the ark and the great flood. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so that means we need to think about this. What was the flood about? What was going on in the flood? Well, listen, the flood is about this. The flood is about God actively judging sin. God judges sin. But in the midst of judgment, God provides a means of salvation. God saves Noah and his family through the ark. There is a way to be saved. And we hear that reference as we go through the prayers that I'm going to pray as we stand around this font this morning in preparation for baptism. I'm going to pray some prayers, and that, that, that event of God saving Noah and his family is going to be re- uh, referred to. God, the baptism shows us that God judges sin, but he also provides a way for us to be saved. So in our baptism, listen, this is what God said to you in baptism. Through my son, Jesus Christ, I have made a way for you to be saved from judgment. That's gospel. That's good news. And you know, something else that comes up in baptism as well is we are thought, we're made to think about the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. God promised to make the descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac into a great nation that would be, listen, his called covenant people. And that covenant was signified through circumcision. And in today's reading from Colossians chapter 2, baptism is directly related to what? To circumcision. This is what it says, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In Christ also, you were circumcised. Did you know that? With a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh... By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, circumcision and baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in our baptism, this is what God says to us. This is important. He says, I make you a child of the covenant through baptism. You are brought into the covenant. You are now a part of my chosen covenant people that I have called out from the world. And again, that's good news. The Scripture says when we were not a people, God made us a people. He made us his own people. And then again, we get a reference to the Old Testament when we think about baptism. When St. Paul uh, talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about, he compares Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt with holy baptism. The escape through the Red Sea with baptism. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all baptized, were all under the cloud and all passed through the Red Sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what happened to Israel in the Red Sea and how does this have anything to do with baptism and salvation and the good news? Well, God delivered Israel from what? From slavery. With an outstretched arm and with a mighty hand, he called out his people and led them through the waters of the Red Sea safely with dry shod feet out of slavery and bondage and death 
into His promises. That's good news. That's the gospel. Baptism preaches the gospel. And so in our baptism, God says to us, I will deliver you from slavery to sin and from the power of death, and I will set you free to enjoy my abundant promises. And the Bible clearly teaches and most uh, emphatically teaches that through baptism, we are brought into God's greatest act of salvation in salvation history in Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, going back to that Colossians passage, having been baptized with Jesus in buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive with him, having having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen, this is what he's saying here. Before we come to Christ, because we are out of a relationship with God and we are under the power of sin, we are literally the walking dead. If Christ is not in your life, you may have a pulse. You may have brain impulses. You uh, You may show up on an EEG. But as far as the gospel is concerned, you are a dead person walking. You don't have true life. And when we are baptized and we come with faith and repentance, God raises us from the death of sin and the power of sin, which controls us, makes us powerless to love God, makes us powerless to serve Him. He releases us from the power of sin and sets us free to follow Him in newness of life. And so in our baptism, God says to us, your old life now has no hold over you any longer. And brothers and sisters, this is why Paul is so emphatic in, uh, in the book of Romans about, you know, if we have died to sin, let us live in righteousness then. In Romans chapter 5 and 6, Paul says you were dead, and, but you've been raised again with Christ through baptism. Don't walk like dead people anymore. Let me ask you this, Christian friend. Is the power of death working in your life again? And if it is, you need to repent of that and walk in the newness of life that God called you to. Is sin taking root in your life? Your old life now has no hold over you. I give you a new resurrection life full of the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel that saves us, and through that which we are born again. And as a matter of fact, listen, baptism is always connected with being born again in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament authors do not seem to be capable of speaking of the new birth without also speaking of baptism. And somehow, and look, I are one, in evangelicalism, I'm an evangelical, uh, we have separated baptism from God's act of salvation, and I don't know how we did that. Because it's certainly not biblical, and as evangelicals, I thought we liked the Bible. (laughs) Always connects in the New Testament, baptism in the new birth. In the New Testament, if there's talk of salvation and being born again, there's almost always a reference to baptism. In fact, we hear that baptism and new birth language clearly in Titus chapter 3. Just one example. I could go into example after example, Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's great, and it's true. But it does beg the question, should we be doing it to little bitty babies? 
Are small children proper candidates for baptism? Should we be baptizing the children of believers? Well, that question itself, you need to know that we would even ask that question is a fairly modern question, one that's only been asked since about the 1600s. For almost the entirety of all Christian history, Christians had their children baptized. The first document that we have about that is Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresy, speaks about it. And uh, Irenaeus was born about the year 140 A.D., He's the first early church father to mention mention baptizing infants. So we can be fairly certain, since he seems to refer to himself, that since 140 A.D. people have been baptizing their children. Christians have been baptizing their children. And the assumption for Irenaeus, Irenaeus and the other church fathers was that that action went back to apostolic times. In fact, Origen, teaching around the year 220 A.D., specifically said baptism of believers' children was handed down from the apostles. And even to this great day, the majority of believers around the world still practice infant baptism. But that doesn't clear up one thing. What does the Bible say about it? I mean, for me, church history is very compelling. But it's not as compelling as what the Scripture has to say. Well, here are the facts, and you need to hear this clearly. There is no biblical passage that commands believers to baptize their children. There is also no biblical passage that forbids believers to baptize their children. (laughs) Thanks for clearing that up. Now, I know there are traditions, and particularly here in the southern part of the United States, uh, there are traditions... um, some Christian churches that teach that baptism should only be administered to someone who can make a personal profession of faith. And I have no problem with that. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for those churches, when many of us were uh, looking for an Orthodox Bible-believing church following leaving churches that had kind of left the Christian faith behind in some key areas, we wouldn't have had any place to go. And thanks be to God for their hospitality. And if that's your background, if your background is in what we would call a credo or believer's baptism background, that's fine. But I do want to challenge you on this because a lot of times we don't get challenged on this. We need to be consistent if we're not going to baptize our children because, listen, if we say there is no direct biblical command that we should do so and therefore we will not do it, we need to be consistent. What do I mean by that? I mean this. If you won't baptize children because there's no direct biblical command to do so, then why are you bringing infants up to the front of the church and publicly dedicating them to God in a church service? There is no biblical support for that action. And if you argue, well, that Jesus was dedicated, then you're talking about something specific to the Jewish law, which would mean, first of all, that you could only dedicate your firstborn son. Second-born children and daughters are out of luck. (laughs) And as we see in the gospel, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus' dedication involved going to the temple and making an animal sacrifice. Is that what you do in your church? No, it's not. So it's not a command from Scripture. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying let's be consistent. Likewise, if being able to make a personal profession of faith, fully understanding what we were doing, is the requirement for baptism, then we could never baptize someone who was severely mentally disabled. We would be excluding them from God's acts of salvation. 
If we object that Benny can't choose for himself at this point to be baptized, then we fail to realize that we don't get to choose many of the most important things that happen in our lives. Specifically, nobody asked me if I wanted to be born. We're not going to ask Benny if he wants to be a Christian. (laughs) If I won't let my children decide if they're going to eat their green beans because their nutrition is too important, or if I'm not going to let them decide whether they're not going to have their vaccinations because that's important, or if I'm not going to let them make the decision whether or not they will go to school because that's vitally important, then I'm certainly not going to let them decide if they're going to be raised like a Christian. These things are important, but being raised as a follower of Jesus Christ is supremely important. One day, yes, they may reject their Christian faith, and that is a sad thing. But as for me and my house, while they are children, we are going to serve the Lord. Which brings us back to the question, what would therefore, would there uh, therefore be a biblical underpinning? That's great apologetics, that's good reasoning, philosophy, or whatever. But is there a biblical underpinning for why we might baptize Benny today? And there is because the the theology of the New Testament and the words and actions of Jesus and his apostles certainly include small children in God's plan of salvation. On the birthday of the church, on Pentecost Sunday, when Peter stood up in the temple courts and preached that first Christian sermon to the multitudes that were gathered there when the Holy Spirit had fallen on the disciples, Peter brings them to a point by recounting to them God's actions of salvation and love and calling in the Old Testament, and he recounts to them over and over their rejection of God's love and salvation in the Old Testament, and finally how they put the Messiah to death. And those people that were there, they cried out, Brothers, what therefore must we do to be saved? How can we be saved? And Peter responds with these words in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what the Bible says. For the promise is for you and for your children. Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then the scripture we heard this morning in Mark chapter 10, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. They were bringing children to Jesus, and that is what we're going to do this morning with Benny. The disciples rebuked him. They said, we don't have any precedent for people doing that. And Jesus saw it. And he was indignant. That means he was mad. (laughs) And said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I think there is more than that in Scripture, and we don't have time to go into all of it, household baptisms, etc. Again, I'm not saying that you have to do this. I'm just saying that there is strong biblical case for doing it. It's warranted by the teaching of the scriptures. It's warranted by church tradition. It's certainly warranted by personal experience. But I want to come down to this point. What is God going to do to Benny this morning through the sacrament of holy baptism? What exactly is going to happen to this little boy this morning in the sacrament of baptism? Here's what's going to happen. All of God's saving grace and all of God's covenant promises will be poured out 
on Benny this morning. God promises to act, and he will sovereignly do so. But I can tell you from personal experience that this does not mean that Benny is necessarily effectually converted. I think there are children who are effectually converted in their baptism. I say I I know about this uh, through personal experience. I could say definitely that I was not one of them. (laughs) Um, And this is where my evangelicalism shows through. I was was born on September 5th. Yeah, where's my present? (laughs) Nah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Peanut Gallery. Thanks. <laughs> um, I was born on September 5th, and, and I was baptized in the following month of, month of October. I don't know what my mom and dad who were here this morning thought I was all about, but they were not taking any chances. <laughs> they could not get me baptized fast enough. But it was not until I was 16 years old that by faith and repentance, I received what was already given to me in baptism. By faith and repentance. God has acted, but I had not received it until I engaged the faith he gave me and my repentance for sin. Now, I always uh, tell the story about, like, if, uh, you know, about... <laughs> If, uh, and I've used this so many times you're tired of hearing it, but if, if, uh, if I had a, a classic automobile, like a 1965, uh, no, wait, 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 a 1967 Ford Mustang Fastback, all right, uh, if I had that, red, all right, and, uh, <laughs> and it was mine, I could, I could title that vehicle over to Benny right now. I could put it in his name. I think I could, and Dad, don't contradict me if I can't, because he's a lawyer. He would know. Well, let's say hypothetically I can. But Benny does not have the right or privilege of, of operating that vehicle until he, get, till he comes to the condition of getting his license and putting the key in the ignition and taking off down the road. So he is entitled to it. The gift has been given, but is it effectual and useful in his life? No. I think a better example of this, Benny being given the title to all of the things we mentioned earlier in this sermon about the new birth and being made a child of God and being brought from death to life in Jesus Christ, being made a part of the covenant people of God, being filled with the Spirit. I think a more erudite explanation comes from Dr. H.C.G. Mole, Bishop of Durham, from 1899 to 1922. He was, and this was Durham, England. He was a brilliant scholar. He's a leading evangelical of his day. And he says this about baptizing small children. Listen to this, and I'll, I'll, you'll have to kind of listen closely. In English law, there are legal documents called escrows. This is different from escrow in our country. These are deeds of conveyance which speak in the present tense and do a present act of gift and transfer. But they carry with them a condition to be fulfilled. The effect is to be fulfilled before the effect is actualized. They have a condition to be fulfilled before the event is actualized. The receiver of the title deed does not actually enter on the property given in it. He has it in title but he has it not yet in act and use. Got to get a license, got to put the key in the ignition. He has, he has something at once. 
He received a beneficial title, right, and pledge, the possession of which conceivably at once entitles him to special care, attention, and privileges. Now listen, here's the connection. So baptism, this is what Bishop Mole says, at baptism, so baptism at once and literally in the sense of title makes an infant a member of the church, a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of God. In the sense of title, he is at once regenerate. He receives at once in that respect the acceptance of an adopted child of God in Christ and the new life which is wrought in man by the Holy Ghost. But in the ordinary law of God's working revealed in his word, listen, these precious things in their possession await the humble claim of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So the infant who in sacramental title is born again still needs to be born again. He he is baptismally regenerated, but he needs to be subsequently actually regenerated by faith and repentance. Quick, another example. If you come to the Lord's Supper this morning and you don't come with faith and repentance, at very best, nothing's going to happen to you. At worst, something bad might happen to you if you don't come with faith and repentance to the Lord's Supper. But in other words, you're just going to ingest some bread and drink some wine. But if you come with faith and repentance, all that God promises in the Lord's Supper is effectually present to you. So God is always faithful in the sacrament. But the condition to rightly receive what he promises is faith and repentance. And so this morning, we come seeking God's faithfulness in the sacrament, which he will provide. But we await the day when Benny will personally, with faith and repentance, receive the gift that has already been given to which he is entitled. And that brings me to the final point, and it is this. This is why we have parents and grandparents who will come up here, parents and godparents, excuse me, grandparents will probably be scattered everywhere as well, and great-grandparents, but particularly believing parents and godparents have the solemn duty to make sure that what we say we are doing and what we know God is doing in baptism actually occurs in Benny's life. They are the primary evangelists, and the primary catechists, teachers of the gospel, teachers of how to live as a Christian, primary evangelist, primary catechist, mom and dad, Hayden and Gary, you have an obligation to see to it that Benny hears the gospel and receives the gospel by faith and with repentance. And that's what the parents and godparents are required to do. And I guarantee you, the grandparents and great-grandparents will be actively engaged as well. (laughs) Now, It also means that you, as proxy for Benny's church family back in Kentucky, are going to be making commitments as well. And we depend on them to fulfill those commitments as a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church along with us. Every child we bring forward in this church for baptism, we know that we have a responsibility as parents, godparents, and the church family to see that what we say is happening at baptism comes to completion in their life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.